from last week, what we were looking at is the fact that we are um, called to present our bodies, present ourselves as a sacrifice to God. And if you remember, the sacrifice, whether it is from an Old Testament or New Testament concept of a sacrifice, they had the, the same understanding. So can, can someone remember and share what was a biblical sacrifice, whether Old Testament or New Testament? What did we talk about last week? So the idea of a sacrifice. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so there's multiple types of sacrifices, and some were as a result of sin. Let me pay for if I unintentionally sinned or unintentionally transgressed one of the laws of God. Um, we will have a sin offering or a guilt um, offering, but the majority of the sacrifices weren't, weren't related to sin, and a lot of the sacrifices weren't even related to shedding of blood, but it could be grain offering and wave offerings. And the sacrifices of the five different types of sacrifices, four of the five could be freely just chosen to be offered and presented to God as an expression and overflow of your worship and praise to God. Because you have a desire to praise and worship God, you are able to bring sacrifices to God as an expression of your desire. Not all sacrifices shed blood. And this is the understanding that we can even take when we are looking at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And so um, what Paul is saying is because of the great salvation that I have shared with you, that God has brought and made available to you, he says, verse 1, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living and holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. So from the overflow and the overflow of worship and praise to God because of all that he has done for you, present yourself as a sacrifice to God. Presenting your body as a sacrifice to God, this is, you could also say it as sacrificing yourself. And we'll be using this, uh, this phrase or this terminology today, this idea of sacrificing yourself. And so going again back to last week, who can remember there were um, two ways that we talked about in verse um, 2, on how we sacrifice ourselves to God. Does anyone remember what these two ways were? We sacrifice ourselves to God by, who can remember one of them? Resisting the world. That's right. So the first one, resist the world, do not be conformed to the world. And the second one was how? Renewing your mind. Resisting the world, renewing your mind. This is the way that you can present your body as a sacrifice to God. So a believer who offers his or her body as a sacrifice to God will think rightly or biblically about God's will for their life. That's a way of summarizing this. If you are sacrificing yourself to God, you will think biblically and rightly about God's will for your life. So, when we have in, in verse 2, like what we just read, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and pur purpose, uh, or perfect. So, watch the flow that, that he goes through. He says, worship God by sacrificing yourself to him. Then number two, 
sacrifice yourself to him by resisting the world. Also, sacrifice yourself to him by renewing your mind. And if you do this, you will know what God's will is. Now, implicit in this is actually, and it's also explicit elsewhere in, script, elsewhere in Scripture, but implicit is if you know what the will of God is, the one who is sacrificing himself will be able to know this. He will be able to discern God's will. And the one who is sacrificing himself will also do the will of God. And, and th that's just a logical understanding. I can't be sacrificing myself to God knowing what the will of God is, but not obeying it, not doing it. That's, that's not sacrificing yourself. The one who is sacrificing himself will also do God's will. So, and, and let me ask, where might you look in Scripture? Are there any passages that you might think of that make reference to the fact that the faithful believer is doing, is doing um, the will of God? Can anyone think of any passages that would, that would uh, also support that? Yeah, so in, in, in 1 John, 1 John 2, 3, and 4, right? How do you know that you know him? What is the test that you can give yourself? Do I know him? Am I saved? If you obey his commandments. The one who says, I know him, but does not obey his commandments, the truth is not in him. That person is a liar, right? So if you know God, you do obey his commandments. And not obeying, well, that is affirmation that you do not know him. We also know not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? But who is it that, that enters the kingdom of heaven? The one that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He will enter, right? So the one who is sacrificing himself to God will both discern, he'll know the, God of, the, the will of God, and do the will of God. So brothers and sisters, if you are sacrificing yourself to God, if you are living a life of self-sacrifice, you will be discerning and doing God's will. And within the context of those who are sacrificing themselves to God, right thinking by necessity results in right action. Okay? Right thinking it can be almost synonymous with right action in the context of those who are presenting themselves as a sacrifice to God. And in um, Romans 12, we're going to be looking at 3 through 8 today. And the reason I kind of point this out is because he's talking about some knowledge and thinking and the way you view yourself. And we have to understand, we cannot approach this passage with an idea that I want to understand this and then walk away and not live it out in obedience. So as we approach this passage today and we talk about thinking rightly and learning truths and maybe changing and renewing the way that we view ourselves, and specifically it's going to be viewing ourselves in the local body, we have to understand that this call to think rightly it is also a call to action to do that which we now think rightly on, okay? So what we're going to see in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, it, it, it actually is here that Paul gives two implications of the believer who resists the world and renews the mind. So a believer who is doing these two things, I'm actually now going to give you two implications of someone doing that. And these two implications of the believer assume that right thinking results in right action, right action. And so Paul is going to actually share two arenas of your salvation that you must view through the lens of self-sacrifice. Again, we're talking about sacrificing ourselves to God, and we've got two specific arenas of your life that Paul says you must view through the lens of self-sacrifice. And we're going to see that you must view yourself through the lens of self-sacrifice, and you must view your service 
through the lens of self-sacrifice. So let's start with prayer, and then we're going to jump in this morning. Our God and Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We pray that you would shape our understanding, shape the way we view ourselves, our salvation. We pray that we would shape our understanding of who we are before you, and we pray that that would result in shaping the way that we live our life. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So Romans 12, if you're not there, go ahead and open up, and I'm going to start reading in verse 3, and we'll go through verse 8. So Romans 12, verse 3, for through the grace given to me, I say to each one among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. But having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, whether prophecy in agreement with the faith, or in service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with generosity, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So, so let's look at these two arenas of our life that Paul shares in this passage that we must view through the lens of self-sacrifice. And the first one, as I had mentioned just before, it says we must view yourself through the lens of self-sacrifice. Look at verse 3 again right here where he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to each one of you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, notice how he starts this off, and this is actually going to be a good key that we want to pay attention. He starts off talking about his position as an apostle. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say. Paul is starting off this section with his apostolic authority being the foundation upon which he is standing and about to say this next phrase. And we actually see this uh, you know, very similarly in a few chapters in, in uh, Romans 15, where he actually um, mentions, but I have written to you uh, very boldly on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God. This is one of these sections that he's writing very boldly on. We can probably expect this section to touch us, maybe cut our quick a little bit, to be convicting. If you think about it, I'm not going to, as Paul, I'm not going to stand upon the authority of the gospel and my authority as an apostle of Christ to say Jesus loves you. If I'm going to pull out the apostolic authority card, we're probably going to be saying something that is either hard to hear or hard to believe or something that might be convicting to ourselves. And we need a reminder that this is the apostle of Christ who is speaking and he is speaking with Christ's authority. So with that, understand, with that understanding, let's look and see who it is that he's actually speaking to. He, he says... I say to each one among you, the Apostle of Christ is saying to each one among you. So first, he's speaking to the entire congregation, to each one among you. This is plural. Okay, this is a you all. Or, I, I don't know, like, I know Dan, I think I saw him in here. Do they say put Jersey like use guys? I don't know if that's up there. But it's this idea, I'm speaking plurally to all of you all. He's speaking, though, to each individual among the plurality of you. So he says, I say to each one among you. And he's assuming that the believers 
they are sharing their lives together. If there is a plural you, I'm going to speak to each individual that is among the congregation. There's an assumption that we have individuals sharing our lives together and speaking to the entire group. This is going to go to each individual that is in that congregation. This message applies to the pastors and it applies to the members of the flock. It applies to you if you have kids or if you have no kids. If you're single or married, he's speaking to you. If you have family nearby or you have no family nearby and you're on your own, he's speaking to you. Those who are wealthy and those who are struggling and living on a shoestring budget, he's speaking to you, each one among you. If you are mature or if you are a brand new immature believer, if you live a block away from the church or if you live over in Palo Pinto County, he's speaking to you. What he's about to give, this message applies to everyone who's a part of the church. Those who are healthy, those who are weak and sickly, physically, those who have no trials in their life, and those who are in the midst of trials that make you feel as though your life is coming down around you, he is still speaking to you. So it's this understanding right now. And I go through this process because wherever you are in life, and he's getting ready to talk about your service within the body, there is nobody who has an escape card or a get-out-of-jail-free card who can say, this is a season of life where this does not apply to me. This is, this is a message that is going to um, be given to each one among you, regardless of where you are, there is no get-out-of-jail-free for this season I don't need to have this message apply to you. So let's sharpen your pencils. Let's pay attention because this is what Paul is speaking to you. And what is the message that Paul has on behalf of Christ as his apostle? He says, verse 3, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Paul is talking to the church about humility. Now, think, and this is, this is going to be neat, and if you look on your handout, um, this, is, this is on your handout. Think is the word phroneo. And what it would actually mean would be to think or to appraise or regard. So the way you think about something or the way you appraise something the way you view or regard something. This is the word for neo. And so in this, in this verse right here, verse 3, a variation of, of phroneo, this think, shows up th uh, four different times. And so there's actually a word play here that doesn't show up in most translations. Um, and, and it might have regard and think, and we don't even realize that it's talking about really the same concept. So it says, do not... Hooper phroneo, which is highly think or highly regard, than he ought to phroneo, think. But phroneo, think, with sophroneo, which would be soberly think or come to your senses. And so um, you could actually read, if you were to say, let, let's take the, um, the translation of appraise, to appraise something as Phroneo, this is how you would read it. Do not hyper-appraise yourself, then you ought to appraise. But appraise with sober appraisal. Or Henry Alford, who was an English um, theologian in the 1800s, this is the way that he put it. And, um, and I think this reads very well to try to capture the wordplay that you would get if you were reading the way that Paul wrote the letter. He says, um, not to be high-minded, above which he ought to be minded, but be so-minded as to be sober-minded. So this is all talking about the way you think. So the way you think of yourself, do not hyper-think of yourself, but think so as to be 
thinking soberly or rightly. So what does it mean to view yourself sober-mindedly or the way you ought to think? What does it mean to think about the way that you ought to think? Well, um, this actually, and this is a great way to understand this as well. In Mark, um, Mark, 5, uh, Mark 5, 15, but also in Luke 8, 35, um, Mark and Luke are both telling of the same instance. It's with the demoniac. Right, where the demoniac who was wild and clothed, I mean unclothed, and nobody could contain him. And when the people came to him, and the people from the village, they saw him that he was in, he was clothed and in his right mind. That is the same word right, um, right here, the sophronio, that he he was right-minded. So the demoniac was thinking clearly. He was no longer insane. He was appropriately appraising the circumstances. He was clothed. He was normal, thinking normally. He was rightly judging his situation in a way that he had not been able to do previously. And so this is the same mindset that we must view ourselves. We must be able to soberly appraise ourselves and think of us with a right mind. And that is what he is calling us to do. And so, what is the clear and right appraisal a believer should come to when he views himself? Well, we can look at Romans, what Paul has just shared. I was rightly condemned, guilty, dead, but saved by God's sovereign grace. That is a right view of myself. I was unable to understand. I was unable to seek after God. But God chose me by his own gracious love and mercy. I was given a righteousness that was apart from me. Anything good that I have is not from me. All that I have that is of any value is from God. Any righteousness I have is Christ's righteousness. That is the right or sober-minded view of myself. Think rightly. Don't think higher of yourself than you ought but think rightly. Anything I have of any value is only from Christ. It is well said, the only thing that I bring to my salvation is what? My sin. That is what I bring to my salvation. The only sober-minded, well-appraised, evaluation that can be given about me and my salvation is that there is nothing good in me apart from Christ. The only reasonable understanding that I can come to in, in my view of myself is one of utter humility. The most insane response that someone can have in light of their, in light of their salvation is to think highly of themselves. That is that is insane. That is the demoniac before Christ. The only right-minded response and view that I can have of myself is one of humility. The only right-minded response, you could say, is to deny yourself, to sacrifice yourself, to give yourself as an offering to God we must view ourselves through the lens of self-sacrifice, which is humility. So why do I call viewing ourselves and viewing yourself with humility as self-sacrifice? Because in the immediate context of what Paul is just now talking about, this is what he is literally calling us to do. It is the self-sacrificing to God for us as our act of worship. This is 
us viewing ourselves properly. If we as believers view ourselves properly, properly, we present our bodies to God as sacrifices. But we also do it because it's the opposite of our natural inclination in the flesh. We naturally hyper-appraise ourselves. We look at ourselves more highly than we ought. And I loved how Steve Lawson uh, put it, that we want to seeing how great thou art while looking in the mirror. This is what we do, is it not? But viewing ourselves rightly, it requires self-sacrifice. It is self-sacrifice. It is saying who I am is one who can only be given back to God because all that I have of any value came from him and is his. So let me ask, who is not surprised? Who's not surprised that the first way that a Paul applies the right mind thinking is calling us to humility. Is there anyone not surprised about that? I hope we would have every hand up and agreeing, yes, this is what we would expect. And why? Why is this an obvious first call from Paul when calling someone to sacrifice, them, sacrifice themselves to God? Why would Paul call believers to view themselves with humility when he's calling themselves to offer themselves as, as an offering to God. Why is that a reasonable expectation that he would start with that? Why would we expect him to start with a call to humility? Yeah, one, because we know that's not what we want to do right? So chances are this is something everyone's going to struggle with, so we're going to start with that. Very good. Thank you. Why else? We're following our Lord. Lord. That's exactly right. Listen to what, um, and and we we all know um, what Christ did. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians uh, chapter 2. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, huh, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, and of course, yes, there is each one of these things. If there is one thing that will come out of your salvation, this is what he's saying, let this be it. Verse verse 2, he says, fulfill my joy that you may think the same way. By maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. The same word, the phronio. The way you think is an outflow of the way you view your salvation. And directly after this, he says, do nothing from selfish selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than himself. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking. This is the same word, phronio. Have this way of viewing and appraising and thinking in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus. And we know how it continues, where he walks through how Christ um, emptied himself by taking on the form and nature of man and servant and becoming obedient to death, death on the cross. So this is what, what we just read, this is what Paul is saying In Romans 12, if there is one thing that comes out of your salvation, let this be it. Think rightly of yourselves. Think rightly of others with humility. Put others as more important than yourselves. Oh, and this is exactly what Christ did. This is what he did in bringing you salvation. 
Christ was self-sacrificial, literally. Christ presented his body to God as a sacrifice on your behalf. In other words, in light of your salvation, proper thinking of yourself is a self-sacrificial thinking. Self-sacrificial thinking is Christ-like. And let's think through this. Where we've been looking at in Romans, if you look at Romans 1 through 11, Paul has just elaborated on the doctrines of man and God and sin and salvation and the divinely given application that we talked about last week in Romans 12 The divinely given application of these great truths is to present yourself as a sacrifice and you self-sacrifice by transforming your mind. And the first way you transform your mind is by transforming the way you view yourself. The way you view yourself is to view yourself with humility. So I think at this point, we all would be convinced that the only sober-minded, the only right-thinking way of appraising ourselves is that we must view ourselves through the lens of humility. But let me give you one more reason from what we've talked about in in verse 3. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to each one of you, um, each one among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, faith, when when it looks at this measure of faith that has been allotted or set aside and given to each one, um, most interpreters understand this not as the saving faith, We don't have a a measure of salvific faith, but um, rather it's the faith of the Christian life that God has distributed to each believer. And this is going to make so much sense as we start looking at the following verses. But what he's saying is your Christian life has been measured out and allotted to you by God. Each one has had a life of faith that has been ordained and given to you, allotted and measured out by God. And this is similar to the understanding of what we see like in 2 Corinthians 10. In in verse 10 and 13, it references the areas of influence God has assigned to us even to reach you. So Paul is talking about how his ministry that God has assigned to him even includes ministering to the Corinthians. And it's that same type of concept. God has allotted to each member of this church a measure of the Christian life. And we we actually see this type of an idea, this same understanding of the faith not being the salvation faith, but the faith that you have and you live, this is what we see in Hebrews 12. In, in um, uh, Hebrews 12, too, it says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, who is what? He's the author, that's salvific faith, and the perfecter of faith. So Christ is the author, uh, author of salvific faith, but he's also the perfecter. The life that has been given to you, that life of faith, is a measure of faith. Christ is the one who is both the author of that, but also Christ is the one who is perfecting or sanctifying you in your your life. The author of faith and the giver of faith, both of these are even referencing the life you have having been saved. And so, do you see how understanding that the life that I find myself in has been allotted to me by God, this must help develop and foster a spirit of humility when I view myself? What would I boast in? What could I ever be hyper-appraising of myself in? In what I've accomplished? 
in what I have um, achieved for Christ? Can I boast in those I've led to Christ or in the ministries that I serve in? They have been allotted to me by God. They are not myself. And if we understand that each one has been allotted by God a measure of faith, then we have to understand that what we have is not from us, and therefore we must receive it with humility. Understanding that each one has the faith of, that God has given to us, given by God's sovereign choosing, can only help us be, be humble when we rightly view and rightly appraise ourselves. God has allotted to each a measure of faith. It's not you, it's God. And if this is true, that God has allotted to each of our own, uh, each of us our own measure of faith, our sober-minded, self-appraising way of thinking, it must be in line with this, that it's not for me. It must result in humility. And just one thing to note that understood in this has to be the fact that God has allotted to each member a measure of faith. There is not the full, full totality of the Christian life that has been given to any individual. Your walk and your life will be different from me. Your ministry will be different from me because God has given each one of us our own measure of faith. Our ministries and our lives will look different, but they will all have come from the hand of God according to what he has allotted. It is only by the grace of God that you are what you are. And this is especially true, even true, in your Christian walk. And we see Paul who says this. In 1 Corinthians 15, what does he say? He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He had his allotted measure of faith, and it was the gift of grace. And that's the same thing that he started in verse 3 of Romans 12. For through the grace given to me, the allotment of faith that was given to him, it is the grace of God. And this is why we have the same mind that Christ did. This is why we consider others as more important than ourselves. This is because they are. Christ did this very thing. So when we view others, we are viewing them as people that God has put into my life for me to be faithful, to minister, and serve. So we must view ourselves, ourselves, through the lens of self-sacrifice. But we continue on in verses 4 through 8, which does go faster. Um, how about verse 3? That was, that was good. Ver, but starting verse 4 through 8, we see that we must view our service through the lens of self-sacrifice. So let's look closer. So verse 3 where it says, As God has allotted to each a measure of faith, then flowing right after that, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. But having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. It's a gift of God's grace, the allotment, whether prophecy in agreement with the faith or service in his serving or he who teaches in his thinking or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with generosity, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So verses four through eight, if you look at it, you'll see that it's actually um, set up like this. You have in verse four, just as, so this is an understood reality. We know that this is the case. Just as this is true, so, or some translations say, even so, 
this is also true. So this is, this is the format. So verse 4, he's going to state something that we know is evidently true. And verse 5, this is the response of it. So one who rightly appraises his Christian life will realize a couple things. And this is what we see in verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. The one body of the church is full of many members. Look around, right? We understand the one body of the church is full of many members. And these many members have unique functions, which he's just shared is according to the allotment that that God has given to them. And therefore, we know that each one of these members have been given their own and their unique allotment of faith from God. And if this is true, just as this is true, then also verse 5 and 6 is true. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I'll tell you that phrase. We'll get to that. That's going to knock you. So individually we're members of one another, but having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So let's look at this. The logical truths of being in one body together that are all uniquely allotted from God is that we are one body in Christ. Even though we are many, there is one body. This unity is in Christ. And this is a concept we see other places in Scripture, the the idea about the many body parts coming together to be one body. Um, But look look at this next phrase. Even so, it says, who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Now, I want to walk us through this because um, this is going to be something that is, it, it, it changed. It changed the way I viewed myself within Calvary Bible Church. The body is the hand's body. It says individual members of one another. Okay? We individually are members of one another. The body, the body is the eye's body. The body is the hand's body. The body is the body of the hammer toe. The body belongs to those individual parts. Each member is the body of the other member's body. Each member, meaning you, you are the body of the other member's body. We're going to work through this. We are individually members of one another. I am part of Rodney's body. In this passage, Paul is not saying Rodney is part of my body. He is saying we are individually, each person is a member of the other. The focus is not that the individual, the focus is not that you have a body made up of other parts, but rather you individually are the body of the other parts. So think, think through this. And let's see the difference here. The body and the parts, who has the greater ownership? The body has the rights over the parts. 
if I have an infection in my foot, it is acceptable for me to cut my foot off for the good of the body. Right? So I individually am a part of a body, but the body has the rights over me. Does that make sense? If you are the member of a body, which you are, that body has the rights over you. That is a position of humility. Let me summarize it this way. The body has rights for you and your service to the body. The body is not here in this passage to serve you. You are the body belonging to the other members of Calvary Bible Church. You must view your service in Calvary through the lens of self-sacrifice because you are an individual body member belonging to the body of the others. Would you permit your toe to up and leave your body if it did not want to be your toe anymore? Of course not. You can't just let it leave. Would you go to the doctor and say, my toe is not working well? Well, no. And cut it off? No. You'd say, go to the doctor and have him fix it. Why? Because it's your body and you have the right over that part to make it start working again. The rights belong to the body, and you as a member are here for the service of the body, not the other way around. Do we understand that? We often, and, and I'll, I'll say, look at me, I often would think I am a member of the body, and the focus is on the member, and wow, I have this function, and I've got a whole body that comes with me. But this is the other way of thinking of it, and what Paul is actually saying, that individually, we are members of the other. And this can only result in a view of humility and self-sacrifice, because I no longer have a body to serve me, but I realize I am here for the service of the body. Look at how, in verse 6, Paul explains the allotment from God. He says, And individually, members of one another, but having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us. Your allotment in the body, it is a gift of grace. Your gifting is different from others. Your gifting that you have, that is God's grace. And implied in these truths is that you must use these gifts of grace that God has given you as a properly functioning body part, and you must use them to serve the body. When we look at God's allotment of differing gifts, you can look at um, 1 Corinthians 12, the purpose of our passage in Romans is different from what you find in 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, we actually have where it's expounding on the fact that um, we share uh, and each one of us have different parts and we're all, all working together. And Paul's purpose in Romans, though, is to show that the purpose of the individual body part is to serve the body. It's not what you find in Romans 12, where his purpose was to show that you can't look at one body part and say, I don't have need of you, and say to another body part, I don't have need of you. He's using the same illustration to attack different problems or different points. The point of this passage is you have been given as a member 
of the body, and the body that part that you have been given is an allotment from God. It's a gift of grace, and you are obligated to give of yourself in sacrifice, in humility, to serve the body that you are a member of. The proper perspective is to say, my service as this part of the body must be self-sacrificial for the good of the body. If you look at what he did in Romans 12, he started with the vertical relationship and talked about you, in light of your salvation, presenting yourselves as a sacrifice to God and then quickly moved towards the horizontal relationship. How do you... um, After having been in a right relationship with God, how do you play that out? You play that horizontally within the body of Christ. You serve the body. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 22, the greatest commandment. You love God and you love your neighbor. The horizontal, the way you worship, is by loving your neighbor. They are hand in hand. You can't take one without the other. And this is why God saved us in, in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, and he died for all so that they who live would no longer live for themselves. Our salvation was so that we would no longer be living for us, but rather for him who died and rose again on their behalf. God reconciled you vertically so that you could live horizontally. And this is what we see in Ephesians 2. We know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Salvation, vertically, what is verse 10? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is an understanding that the immediate result of being right in fellowship with God will result in the horizontal doing of works and living our, um, living our lives in service, and specifically in the context of Romans 12, it's living our lives in self-sacrificial service within the body that he has placed us for the good of the body. If you look in verse 6, where he says, but having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, whether prophecy and agreement of the faith or service and serving, or he who teaches in his teaching and continuing all the way down, he gives a sampling. But his purpose, even in the sampling, is not to give us a, a list and teach on spiritual gifts. These are examples for us to follow on how do I live as an individual member of our body, how do I live in a way that is humble and self-sacrificial within the body? So notice what he says. He says, in prophecy, and, um, and the prophecy, there's two aspects, and I think many of us are probably familiar, but you have the foretelling that this is what will come, but you also have the forthtelling, the proclaiming, this is the truth from God. And in our context today, uh, the foretelling, we have scriptures, but the forthtelling, the proclaiming the word of God, this is what we call the preaching ministry. And this is what we see um, down in the sanctuary, the forthtelling. And when you are given the gift of prophecy, of proclaiming the truth, of preaching, you do it in agreement with the faith. You do the work. You cannot stand up before your congregation and preach in a way that is haphazard and sloppy. You do the work and give of yourself the hours and hours so that you can make sure by the time I get in front of the pulpit and I proclaim, thus says the Lord to my people, I am right and I am in agreement with the faith that has been given. 
that can only come through diligent work and effort. You must be self-sacrificial. Dan and Randy and Jason and the pastors that we have had come and proclaim, they give of themselves weekly so that when they are prophesying, they are in agreement with the faith. That is self-sacrificial. When you look at the service, how is it that you are to serve? You serve in your service... You are to give self-sacrificially and serve. Are you a servant? Gladly spend and be spent for the body. Are you a teacher? Then you are to gladly spend yourself and be spent for the body to which you belong. What if you don't have a position as a teacher in the church? Do you have a house? Do you have a group who you can meet with at work and go through Matthew 5 through 7? Sacrificially put yourself out there to teach, whether it's to 50 or whether it's to 5. Gladly spend and be spent for the body. It says, and this is a great one, when it's talking about exhortation, if you exhort, exhort, um, it's just to encourage specifically for a response. Are you exhorting people in the body to respond and live in a godly way? Do it in a way that is for their good, not your own. That is self-sacrificial. If you have been gifted with the gift of exhortation, you must use that gift in a way that is for the good of the body and put yourself in situations that might even be uncomfortable, but it's going to be an uncomfortable situation that exhorts someone to make a change in their life for God's glory and their good. If you exhort, exhort self-sacrificially. Are you a giver? Do it sacrificially. And he says, if, if you're a giver with generosity, uh, gen, the generosity, it's, I, I, I just want to read the definition for, the, for this word that was here. It was, it was a single simplicity and sincerity. When you give Simply and sincerely give, not for show. And he says, this is a virtue of one who is free from pretense and hypocrisy. Have you been gifted to give? Give sincerely, not from pretense, not hypocrisy. And the definition continues, it says, not self-seeking, openness of heart. When you give, give from an open heart. Are you a God-allotted leader? Do it sacrificially. Do it diligently. What you find as you go through this list, and this actually continues on from verse 9 and following, all that you do as a member of this body, all must be done from the perspective, I am here to serve the body. And I want to give one illustration of this, and I could give a hundred. Marcus Cooper, we know this brother. A couple years ago, he had two jobs. He had a baby born. He was in the first semester of E4M. He was teaching in Sunday school, and it went on and on, and he did it sacrificially with the joy on his face. He had the right, from the world's perspective, to say, this is not the season. I'm going to pull my get-out-of-service-free card. But this is a brother who exhibited Romans 12. This is what each one of us individually are called to do. We are to look at our lives, evaluate it, and say, what is the Christian life that God has given to me? Let me take my life 
that I have been given and in humility present it to God as a sacrifice and do this by serving my body to which I belong. There is no one in this room or in this body who can escape from that call. Each one of us individually are to serve God by sacrificially and humility giving ourselves to our body in service. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the encouragement from this passage to worship you well through service. We pray that you would find us faithful. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. I